If you have your Bibles today, I'd like you to turn them, if you would, to 1 Peter. We are beginning today a new series called A Living Hope, Living Hope in a Hopeless World. We're going to take a good part of this year to get through this book because this is one of the great books of the New Testament. They're all good. They're all the Word of God. But this one is written for our day. Peter was living in a pre-Christian world. The gospel had not fully taken effect, and there were many people who didn't understand it or even appreciate it. Many of the people he wrote to were being persecuted. You and I are living in a post-Christian world where the things of Christ are being abandoned, and around the world, persecution is on the increase. What do you write to people who are living it out in a hopeless world, the only hope that can save them, and people are opposed to it? What do you say to those people to encourage them to stay strong? This is the book of 1 Peter. Peter knew Jesus. He walked with the Lord for three and a half years. Carla and I have been to Peter's village in Capernaum. It's amazing to stand by Peter's house. The foundation is still there. And to think of the number of times that Jesus stayed in that house. To walk out of that house where you can still see the layout of what it was. You walk out of there a short walk down through the brush to a rocky shoreline where many times Jesus met Peter, got in a boat, and went on some of their greatest adventures. The synagogue that Jesus healed so many people in is just a hundred yards or less behind Peter's house, just to the north. That foundation of that synagogue is still there. And to realize of all the things that Jesus taught Peter about living out this life, the things that would come that would be difficult, and how Peter used all of that to include in this letter what living for Jesus Christ is really about and how to do it in the face even of stiff opposition. This is the letter of 1 Peter, a living hope in a hopeless world. Let's pray together as we begin. Father, the themes in this book are powerful, and they could only have been given by God to a man who had been taught to walk with Jesus. The early Christians were paying a price and because they were willing to pay it, many of us today have heard the gospel and believed ourselves. And they paid this price because they had a hope. A living hope is what they had. A living hope is how they lived. And I'm praying today, God, you will help us. Whether we are here today, whether we are watching online, wherever we are, that we will know more of our calling to this living hope in a hopeless world. And we'll thank you, God, for what you'll show us in Jesus' name. Amen. Years ago, I read of a study that was done at Syracuse University about hope, of all things, and here's how they did it. They took a bucket, large bucket, and they put water in it, enough water that when they put a rat inside, the rat couldn't touch the bottom, but he also couldn't climb out. And they were trying to see what would happen. So they put a rat in this bucket, and they said the rat swam around and around and around, always looking up. And as long as he could see that there was daylight, there was a possibility of getting out, the rat swam and swam and swam and swam and swam until he got so tired, eventually couldn't swim anymore, and started to drown. They took the rat out. They took another rat, fresh rat, put it in the bucket. Only this time, they put a clear lid on the top with holes in it so he could breathe. And an interesting thing happened. They said the rat went around the container twice, 
saw that there was no hope of escape and put his own head under the water to drown himself. The difference was the power of hope. Andy Crouch, in his article, The Gospel and Steve Jobs, said human beings can live for 40 days without food, four days without, or excuse me, 40 days without food, four days without water, four minutes without air, but we cannot live four seconds without hope. Hope is the desire for something accompanied by the expectation that you'll actually receive it. In fact, the Bible uses the word for hope that describes a happy or joyful expectation of the good that God has promised. Consequently, our hope is only as good as the object of our hope. So if the basis of our hope is not reliable, then what we're putting our hope in is not a hope, it's only a wish. Contrary to Jiminy Cricket, all our wishes do not come true. But if hope is rooted in someone or something who always comes through and whose promises are always good, then we can have what Peter called a living hope, an active hope. And the people he wrote to needed that hope as they sought to live for Christ under very difficult circumstances in a hopeless world, a world much like our own. You see, the early Christians I mentioned were pre-Christian world. The, the power of the gospel and the influence of Christ had not yet taken hold. You and I are living in a post-Christian world where the influence of Christ and the gospel is being abandoned, but the result is the same. There are many, many people who don't know the Lord and don't understand Christians. The effect on society is powerful. It's crumbling. In Peter's day, there were long-held values that were being abandoned. Trust in leaders and each other was eroding. People were desperate to find solutions, but nothing was working. Everything they tried came up empty. And the Christians, who had the only real hope, were being marginalized and even persecuted because people were considering them and their values to be part of the problem. Sound familiar? Peter wrote to them to encourage them to stay strong, remember their calling, hold on to the hope that was theirs because of Jesus Christ. And so Peter begins this letter reminding the people of the hope of their calling. He said, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, and Asia and Bithynia. These are Roman provinces, provinces of what is now modern-day Turkey in the northern part of that country, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. Peter's reminding them of this calling. Living for Jesus is not easy. Trials are going to be real. The blessings are real. And our hope is secure. In fact, we are the only ones who have a real hope, a living hope, to give us strength to keep living and testifying for Jesus in a world without hope. Peter reminds them Christians have a living hope rooted in the hope of their calling. And what is this calling? Interesting, Peter said the call is to live as God's elect and to live as God's exiles. We are called to a living hope as God's elect. In verse 1 he said, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, exiles, scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father 
through the sanctifying work of the Spirit to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood, grace and peace be yours in abundance. We are chosen for a purpose. My son and daughter-in-law uh, just got a new cat. I'm not sure why anyone would do this, but they did. Anyway, it's a cute little guy. They named him Howie. You ever think about the process of choosing a cat, whether at the pet store or the animal shelter or from a kid sitting with a cardboard box in front of the grocery store? See, here's all these cats, big cats, little cats, young cats, old cats, you get all these cats. And you look in there, and you're going to choose one. Now, you're faced with the reality. You could choose them all. If you're a cat lover, you may want to. You could choose none, but you end up choosing one for reasons known only to you. Now, when you choose one, does that mean you don't care anything about the other cats? No, if you're a cat lover, you wish you could have them all. But you choose one to the exclusion of the others because you have a purpose in mind. You don't choose that cat because of what they will yet do. You don't know what they're going to do. You don't choose them because of their personality. You can't always tell in a cage or a box. You make a sovereign choice. You pick one. It has nothing to do with the ones you leave behind. You know, in some ways, that's what God did in regards when it comes to this doctrine called election. God loves all. He chooses some. He made his choice before the world was made. Before any people were created, before any of us were born, God exercised his sovereign right and chose some to belong to him. And the Bible said it wasn't based on anything we did or what we would do or those who would believe or not believe. It was a sovereign act of God's grace. Now, I know it makes people feel better to say, well, God chose, yeah, but he chose because he knew who was going to believe or he knew who those who were going to do these works. That makes us feel better, I know, but that is not what the Bible teaches. That's not the doctrine of election. It diminishes God. It makes us based upon our works. If he chose us based on some future thing we would do, it was not based on grace. It was based on what we would do. This doctrine of election causes a lot of heartburn, but it was never meant to. I had a guy tell me, I don't like the idea of election, so I don't believe in it. I said, well, that's convenient. You may not like it and you may not believe in it, but it doesn't change the reality of what it teaches. Paul wrote to the Ephesians in Ephesians 1, verse 3, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will, not our works, to the praise of his glorious grace, not our efforts, which he has freely given us. We didn't earn it. It's all in the one he loves. Ephesians 1, verse 11, in him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. 
in order that we who were the first to put our hope in Christ might be for the praise of his glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who's a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. And see, there's the balance in Ephesians 1. We're chosen, predestined, before the world was made, not based on works, God's sovereign grace and choice, and it's all according to God's plan. And you were included in Christ when you heard and responded to the truth in the message of the gospel, which settles the question, if God chooses who'll be saved and who won't, then why do we need to share the gospel? Because we don't know who God's elect are until they respond to the gospel, which they won't respond to if they don't hear it. And he said, when you heard it, the evidence of your election was you believed it. And you were included in Christ when you heard. Now, I don't like parts of this either. I'm just telling you what the Bible teaches. And we can get heartburn all we want, but it doesn't change what the Bible teaches. Now, what's interesting about this is what we get all worked up over in controversy and spend hours and hours and hours debating through the centuries, we lose sight of the fact that Peter called them the elect in the midst of their trials to give them hope and encouragement. That's why he referred to them as that. That's why the Bible goes back and tries to help us to understand if you are chosen, elect of God, you need to know you're part of God's plan. It's amazing. Sometimes when we get all worked up over this, we become like the people at the church at Rome. They had a hard time grabbing onto this too. So, Paul told in Romans 9 an example from Israel's history about Rebekah's two sons, Isaac's two sons, Jacob and Esau, twins, same father, same mom, but God chose one and not the other. Romans 9, verse 10. Not only that, but Rebekah's children were conceived at the same time by our father Isaac. Yet before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose in election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. Just as it's written, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. What then shall we say? Is God unjust? Verse 14, not at all. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not therefore depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. Does God really raise people up for his sovereign purposes and then use them to carry them out? Yes, he does. Romans 9, verse 17. Scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy. He hardens whom he wants to harden. One of you will say to me, then why does God still blame us? For who is able to resist his will? But who are you, a human being, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to the one who formed it, why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay, there's a good description, some pottery for special purposes and some for common use? You see, God has sovereign purposes in his election. 
Sometimes, Paul said, it's to display his wrath in some so that others may see his mercy in others. Remember, the real question in election isn't why would God choose some and not others? The real question is, why would God choose any? If it's based on works, we all lose because all of us have sinned and fall short of his glory. There's no incentive in human works for God to choose anybody. God would have been perfectly justified to save none and save Jesus, but he didn't. The Bible says we're chosen before the foundation of the world, predestined to be adopted at the cost of Jesus Christ. One of my old theology profs used to say, remember, Jesus' death is sufficient to pay for the sins of everybody, but it's efficient to those who believe. This fact that we are called to be God's elect wasn't supposed to cause controversy and heartburn and turmoil. It was revealed to deepen our hope that if God has chosen us to be his and he has a plan and purpose for us, he will not abandon us and everything we're facing, we can trust God in. He knows of it. And what we're experiencing will be used to fulfill God's purpose. This is why Peter writing to persecuted Christians could remind them of their calling as God's elect. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, chosen, set apart by the Spirit of God himself. People, that reality was to give us hope in our daily challenges. Because when you have a hope in your calling, it changes the way you live. It changes the way you approach everything. What allows a police officer or a firefighter to put their life on the line to save me or you? Because they have a calling. They have a calling. They were chosen for that. That's their purpose. And the guys who do that as a calling, you can tell by the way they carry out their duty. What helps a mom or dad get up every day, deny themselves, and give so much to provide for their children? Because they're called to it. Conscientious parents know the kids come before me. That's what parents do. So when things get tough and it's the middle of the night and you haven't gotten any sleep and they need another round of medication and you're rocking them to sleep, why are you doing it? You do it with a whole different purpose because you know that's what you were called to do. That is your role. When my future son-in-law left for his second military deployment, his deployment, he's going to be gone six months. It was hard for him to leave our daughter Kimmy. But when I asked him about it, he said, you know, it's hard to leave, but I, I'm excited about the mission. And I said, well, why is that? You know what he told me? This, I was chosen for this. This is what I was trained to do. You see how it changes everything when you understand you've got a purpose and a calling and you were trained for something? What causes Christians to live for Jesus in a world that often rejects him and often tries to eliminate those who live for him? We were chosen for this before the foundation of the world. God called us to this. That's why we're here. 
and it fosters a living hope for those who are living in a hopeless world. Remember, Peter said, things can sometimes be rough, but remember, you are God's elect, called for his purpose, and you're living out what God elected you to do. So in the midst of everything that gets so tough, remember, you have a hope, and God is with you in that hope. Not only the hope of calling as God's elect, but Peter said we're called to a living hope as God's exiles in the world. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood, grace and peace be yours in abundance. I'm really grateful that Kevin and Brian and Jared could have this most recent trip to Chad. I'm excited to hear. I've been following them online with their updates. I'm very excited to hear of the things that God used them to accomplish. But I can tell you, when you get off the plane in a third world country like that, you know that Dorothy on The Wizard of Oz was right. Toto, I don't think we're in Kansas anymore. The first time Carl, Tom, and I went to Chad in North Africa, uh, we were clearly aliens. We get off a plane after a couple of days of flying. It's 4 o'clock in the morning. We walk into this airport terminal that at the time looked like it had been bombed out or something. It was really run down and old. Had one luggage turnstile with a wire coming down with a bare bulb hanging on the end of it. I'm standing in the security line to get into the country with these military officials with guns standing there checking everybody's passport. Now, I don't, they don't speak English. I don't speak English very well either. They don't speak English. I don't speak French or chatty in Arabic, and I'm thinking, oh, this is going to be good. This is really going to be good. So I hand the guy my passport. He's looking at the passport, he's looking at me, he looks at my passport, he looks at me, and he starts asking me a whole series of questions. I have no idea what he's asking me. So I'm standing there going like... <laughs> a couple of times I said, yes, yeah, yeah. Shaking my head. I have no idea what this guy's asking me. He could have been asking, where are you from? Why are you here? <laughs> are you bringing any weapons into the country? Oh, yeah, yeah, we're, we're bringing lots of them in. I have no idea what this guy's asking me. But I'm praying, and I'm saying, God, look, I don't know what he's saying, and I don't know if I'm doing the right thing. I don't know anything, but if you want me in the country, if you want us to carry this out, you have got to do something. There's no way this guy's going to let me through. So he calls over another guy with a gun, another military guy. And they're jawing back and forth. And I can't tell if they're saying arrest this guy or what. I don't know what they're doing. They both point at my passport. They both point at me, and they start laughing, <laughs> shaking their heads and laughing. Guy took the passport, stamped it, handed it back, and waved me through. I have no idea what God did in that moment, but God did it, I can assure you. 
The whole rest of the time I'm in Chad, I'm thinking, God, this is the way you want us to live. I'm an alien and a stranger here. I don't know the food. I don't know the customs. I don't know the language. I don't know anything. And I'm called here for a mission. And God, I need you to do this just like you did there. I don't know what you did, but you did it. And so I I need to live with my eyes on you. People, that's what Peter reminded these believers of. You guys are aliens and strangers. You don't know the language. You don't know the custom. You don't know anything. You need to trust me. Because you see, this is not your home. You may live in these provinces, Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, You live there. You've been there a while. But you need to understand, the closer you get to Jesus, the more you live for him, the more alien you're going to look in the world. And people are going to start treating you different. Peter said, you're exiles. The word means strangers, literally pilgrims. It's a compound word that means one who sojourns or travels in a strange land away from their own people. Peter said, you've been scattered by God throughout these Roman provinces as exiles with a purpose. You may live in each of these places, but you're not home there anymore. Heaven is your home. You're not supposed to fit in. You're supposed to be different. You should live there for their good, but you're not to be like them. When Paul wrote to the Philippian church, he wrote to another group of suffering believers. He told them in Philippians 3, verse 17, join together and following my example, brothers and sisters, and just as you have have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. For as I have often told you before and now tell you again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach. Their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things. That's where you used to live, but not anymore. Our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. You want to see how much God's under control? Watch him get you through a gate of security in a place where people are asking you questions and you have no answers. You watch God work. Paul said, live as we do. What a difference it made for us in Chad when we met up with a Chadian pastor who spoke seven languages. And he would say, you do as I do. i say, man, I can do that. He spoke for us. When food came, he would look down and say, don't eat that, don't eat that, don't eat that. I can follow that. What a difference it made when we had someone we could follow. Jesus said, you keep your eyes on me, and then I want you to look to others who are living this out because they're a model of how to do this in the world. That's why we need to fellowship together. And when you do this, you'll be used for God's purpose to fulfill the mission. What's the mission? Well, Peter, I mean, excuse me, Paul summarized the mission Remember on his way back to Jerusalem for the last time, he knew that hardship and imprisonment was awaiting him and eventual death. And when they asked him why he was doing this, you remember what he said? Acts 20, verse 22. He defined the mission. 
And now compelled by the Spirit, he said, I'm going to Jerusalem not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. People, we've been called by God to live as aliens and strangers in a world that's ignorant of God and rebellion against Him. And at times, we're going to be asked to proclaim this message with our words, and as we learned in our recent study in the gospel, by how we live. It's a message that saves people when they hear it. But it's a message that not everybody likes. That's why Paul called it the task of testifying. And when you live for Christ in a world like this, you're a shining light that the world needs to see. But sometimes, Jesus said in John 3, the world doesn't want to see the light because it just exposes the sin and they'd rather be in the darkness where they can hide all that stuff. So if you're constantly bringing light to a situation, they're going to oppose you sometimes and they're going to want to get rid of the light. But Peter said, I want you to live as citizens of the kingdom on earth. I want you to settle in. I want you to work for Jesus. I want you to work for the good of the people around you. I want you to be the best citizen in heaven and the best citizen on earth that you can be. Be in the world, but not of it. That's why Peter would later say it in the same letter in 1 Peter 2, verse 11, Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Settle in, live good lives, be a citizen of heaven, be the best citizen on earth. Be the best neighbor there is. Work for the good of those around you. And testify as you do this. They may not like your message, but they won't be able to deny the way you're living. And if you suffer because of it, remember, God chose you for this. That's why Peter said, you are chosen, verse 2, you have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood. You're chosen for this. God the Father, God the Spirit, God the Son. The Father, the Spirit, and the Son. They're all involved in this. Chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. That doesn't mean that God chose just because he knew what was going to happen in the future. There's two parts of this foreknowledge I love. Not only does God know what's going to happen in the future, that's omniscience. Foreknowledge means God knew you before you were made. This wasn't, whoa, surprise, we got a Larry on our hands. God knew me before the world was made. He knew you too. He knew he was going to create me. See, that's the other part of foreknowledge. Not only does God know, but then he acts to bring about what he knows will be. He creates it and makes it happen. Through the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God who is in you applying the, war, the work of redemption to believers and setting them apart for God's eternal purpose. 
That's why Paul told the Philippians in Philippians 2, verse 12, Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation. Not for it, work it out with fear and trembling. Make it operational. For God, it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. To be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled by his blood. Set apart to obey Jesus. Distinctly different than the hopeless world around you who doesn't know him and doesn't obey him. And in that obedience lies the evidence that you're really his because you love him. Remember what Jesus said in the upper room at the Last Supper the night before he went to the cross, John 14, 15. If you love me, keep my commands. And when you do that, you'll be demonstrating love for God in the world. And the joy of realizing I don't live for me anymore. I live for Jesus and to fulfill his purpose in me and through me. We are Christ's ambassadors as exiles in a foreign land. That's why Paul told the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 14, for Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. Now, please don't take this wrong, but why do so many Christians have a hard time realizing, I don't live for me anymore, I live for Jesus. And the way I pray, and the way I give, and the way I serve, and my priorities, and my life, and all that I have, and the circumstances that come upon me, it's God's purpose in my life. He's working these things out. Why do so many Christians not get that? Because, Paul said, you're not convinced. You're not convinced that this is true, that you were chosen by God for this, elected by God for this, equipped by God for this, and put in the world that you live where you live, in your circumstances, with all of your stuff. Because God wants to use that to work out his eternal purpose. But man, when you're convinced of that, everything looks different. Everything looks different. That's why Paul went on to say in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 16, so from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. What's the worldly point of view? We, we look at all of these circumstances through our lens, not Jesus. But when you start looking at it the way Christ does, you're either in Christ or you're not in Christ. There's, there's no other category. Therefore, he said, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone, the new is here. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are, therefore, Christ's ambassadors. As though God were making his appeal through us. and you were sprinkled by his blood. Wow. People, what did the priests do in the Old Testament to set the temple apart, the altar apart, the priest apart, all the instruments in worship apart? What did they do so that everybody could see these are set apart for God's use? They'd sprinkle them with blood. And when people saw the blood on the worship instruments, on the priest, on the altar, on the temple, they knew... You don't use this for common purpose. This, these belong to God. This is for, exclusively for him. 
People, you and I have been sprinkled with the blood of Christ. We've been set apart and made holy by the sprinkling of his blood on us. You and I can't see the blood on us. But God can see it, and Satan can see it, and the spirit world can see it. Satan can harass the believer till it drives him crazy. He can afflict us with disease. He can cause all kinds of financial hardship. He can put us in turmoil and travail. He can even bring us to persecution and even death. But Satan knows, and the spirit world knows, I can't have this one. This one belongs to Jesus. He's covered in the blood of Christ. And no matter what I do, I cannot have him. Sprinkle with the blood of Jesus. People, whatever you're going through, God has a purpose in it. And you know what? When our assignment here is done, when the exile's over, we're, we're going home. We're going home. That's our hope, Peter said, a living hope that grows in the lives of those who know they are called to be exiles for God in the world. We have a hope that keeps us going. 2002, there was a Winter Olympics held in Salt Lake City. The star of that Olympics was an American named Apollo Ono. He was a speed skater. He had hoped to win his second gold medal in the men's 5,000-meter short track speed skating relay. But during one of the turns, an American skater fell but quickly got back into the race. Now, if you know anything about speed skating, they win those things in milliseconds. So if a team member falls down, you're done. I don't care how quick they get back up. Said, while the fall and recovery only took a few seconds, it essentially put the American team out of the race. What was interesting was that the American team began to skate slower and slower and slower, eventually being lapped by the gold medal Canadians. So why did the whole American team slow down? Because they lost their hope of winning. Why does Satan work so hard to try to steal the hope of believers? To convince them that they're losing or they can't possibly win. Because Satan knows if he can get us to give up or steal that hope, if he can steal that hope, we'll start living like losers instead of winners. And we will slow down in what we're doing for Jesus. And while he can't have us, he can stop us. Peter said, don't let that happen. Remember your calling, the hope of your calling. You are God's elect. You were chosen before the, south, before the foundation of the world for this. Instead of getting burned out on all the heartburn of what all that means and how it works, just know this. If you're a Christian today, God chose you. And he chose you with a purpose. You're living in a world like an alien and a stranger. You're in exile. It's not supposed to be comfortable. And the closer you get to Jesus, the more strange it's going to seem. But settle in. Be the best citizen of heaven and be the best citizen on earth. 
and live this out for the good of those around you. And as you do it, testify to the gospel because God is still saving people who believe it. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. Those seem like pretty shallow words to write to some persecuted people. Unless you know everything that's behind it. And what's behind it is this book and this letter that we hope God will unfold for us in the days to come. Father, this hope is real. A living hope is what we have, and a living hope is what we live. And it's rooted in things that are real and true that we often don't think about, don't talk about. And so I'm praying today, God, that as this letter unfolds for us, it'll have the same power of encouragement it has had for those early believers. We won't let anyone or any circumstance or any trial or anybody steal our hope. We've already won. And now we know that everything that happens to us is in the hands of a sovereign God who will use these things for his will and purpose and glory. And we thank you for this reminder in Jesus' name. Amen.